Good morning, happy Sabbath. I am excited because we get to start a new quarterly study. And this quarter, we're going to be focusing on one of my favorite books in scripture. It's a book that I've spent many, many a moment with, whether it be on my personal devotions or looking at it for academic work. And so I invite you to think about what it means to, uh, for God to give us his second law. After all, that's what the book of Deuteronomy means. As you think about the words in this book, my prayer is going to be that God fill your heart, your mind, and your spirit with the certainty and security of his presence. And in order to assure that he will be with us, can I invite you to pray as we get ready to delve into scripture? God, we want to ask that you go before us. And as you go before us, Lord, we would ask that the presence of Jesus, that that presence of the one who calls us and invites us to participate in relation with him, that that presence engulf us today. I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you give us to converse. And we want to ask a prayer of blessing on our friends viewing us. We would ask that you be present in their living rooms, at their desktops, in their hospital rooms, and wherever they may be. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to fix it, Dad. I know I can. I know I can make everything better. If you could just give me some time. If I just have an opportunity to look at the problem again, I can fix it. It's okay. It'll be okay. I'll make it okay. If I try if I try hard enough, it'll be okay. If I will myself to change, I will be able to rally. Yeah, I know. I know that sometimes devastation ensues, but I have the willpower to change it. It'll be okay, Dad. I can fix it. That letter comes from a list of writings gathered that became a documentary looking at the notes that patients wrote to their family and loved ones as they faced terminal diseases. Time and time again, those people those people who had been left without any hope by medical science believed that if they had enough willpower, if they tried, oh, if they tried hard enough, they could revert the situation. And there's something inherent in all of us, something that believes that you and I can control our destiny. A funny thing that was noticed as the people read letter by letter and thought about stories and how all of them ultimately ended with the separation that comes from death. The funny thing is that peace occurred in most of those cases when we stopped trying to fix things 
and we started to pay attention to one another. It's this amazing shift that social workers and physicians realize that hospice care patient noticed as people began to accept their reality and how they stopped investing their energy in trying to fix a problem and, and instead paid attention, paid attention to their surroundings, the things that still gave them some modicum of pleasure, paid attention to friends and family, paid attention, well, paid attention to making sure that the last chapters that they were going to write of their life on this earth were going to be pleasant. And then something happened. People began to feel peace, acceptance. They grappled with grief, sure. But the way they did so was so much healthier than this obsession with trying to fix ourselves. Well, I haven't received a devastating diagnosis, but I want to fix things. Whether it's a scraped knee when my kids come, a problem in my marriage, an issue at work, a moment where I fail to understand who God is, I want to fix it. I love the book of Deuteronomy. Because Deuteronomy calls us not to fix things, but to engage in the exercise of attention. As we talk about the preamble to the book, I want to point you to my favorite passage in the whole of the Old Testament. Shema Yitzrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, most scholars will tell you that this is the first time, the first time in Scripture that Israel begins to crawl out of this henotheistic milieu, meaning they believe in the existence of many a God to accept that there is only one Adonai. It is a watershed moment theologically for the people of God. And while I love theological statements that are profound, what really moves me is what follows Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So we hear and we pay attention to the reality that amidst the competing voices that we have circulating around all the contexts that we inhabit, God is one. God will not share that place of supremacy with anyone or with anything. And that's what you need to understand as we delve into the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy really is about the art of paying attention to the supremacy that God holds. You know, we often make religion about a bunch of things, don't we? 
We make religion about the practices or the communities or the buildings. We make religion about the positions. We make religion about the systems or the, or the creeds. We make religion about fundamental beliefs or what position we take on the hot button issue of the day. I yearn for the moment when we will be able to say once again, Adonai Elohenu reigns supremely within the Adventist church. And that's what Deuteronomy is trying to do. It's trying to invite a group of former slaves to recognize and come to the realization that God holds the preeminent place in any confession they might make. So now that I have your attention, Yahweh says, now that you're completely committed to the realization that I am one, the master and sustainer of your life, what is your response? Do you cower in fear? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you recognize God as holy other and then are convicted by how broken and sinful you have become? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There's a couple things that the original language points us to. First and foremost, in these two short verses, the word Elohenu is used twice. Well, it's, there's an interesting combination there. The word that appears in your Bible as the Lord is translated and read out loud in the Hebrew as Adonai. It's a translation of the tetragrammaton or the name for God, God's individual, personal name, Yahweh. But this personal God, this God that yearns to be known by his name, is Elohenu. Elohenu is the possessive form of the word Elohim, which means God. What I find so moving about that combination of words is that Yahweh, that personal God that is that reigns supreme in the universe, the God that desires to be known, the God that forged you out of the dirt, belongs to you. Yeah, we belong to God. God is our savior, our sustainer. God is the center of our lives. God holds the preeminent position in our stories. But guess what? God also belongs to you. God is Elohenu, your God. And the only response that you can have when you realize that this personal God belongs to you and desires to have this intimate and individual connection with you is to love him. Now, how are you to love them? With all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And the word heart in the Hebrew language is an interesting one. See, for us in the Western world, the heart is the seed of emotions. But the Jews believe, the Jews believe that the heart was the center of all our ability to think and reason that the heart held our identity. And so what the author is saying is that you ought to love God with everything you are. 
that your thoughts ought to be directed towards this deep desire to love and to connect with God. And then he talks about the soul, the nefesh, that divine imprint, what the mystics and the, those that are in the Society of Friends tradition call the inner light. You know what the Hindus call the Atman, the self, this divine imprint that exists in you. You are to give that to God as well. So not only your thoughts, your identity, your very being, but also yourself. And with all your strength, with the work of your hands, and with what you do. This holistic approach to responding to the God that belongs to you is lived out in practices. It's interesting that Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the place where God begins to deliver practices to the people as acts of faith. And I want to propose to you that the way it works is like this. A profound theological statement, namely, Yahweh Eloheinu is one, ought to lead to a deeper sense of intimacy with that God. So our theological statements ought to improve our relationship and our connection with God. And that's kind of how you can gauge if your theological statements are useful or not. And then these theological statements that are lived out in your personal relationship with God as you seek to love Him with everything you are, are translated into our practices. See, our practices are the results of our understanding of who God is those mystical experiences we have with Yahweh Eloheinu. And those experiences grow out of our theological propositions. The problem is a lot of the times, friends, we've got it wrong. We do it backwards. We create practices and then hope that those practices will lead to relationships. And then we hope that those relationships will morph into statements that we make about God. So what are the practices? What are the practices that God is asking for? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God is asking for our full attention. God doesn't want us to fix it. God wants you to be. So let everything in your life be infected with the God that is both personal and that belongs to you. Place that knowledge on your doors. Make that the center of your household. Allow that to be the key to your conversations. Help that ground your social interactions. Write them up. 
You carry them close to your forehead. Nestle them in your arms so that your thoughts and your actions may be led by them. When you sit down and when you lie down, let everything that breathes praise the Lord. I'm excited for this conversation we're going to have in these next 13 weeks on the book of Deuteronomy. But I want our excitement to develop and to be moved by the experience of being in the presence of God. So for the next quarter, stop trying to fix it. Just be. Just be. What are we called to be, Joey? Mm. We are called to be, I mean, at the essence of what you're talking about is that love is at the heart of who God is and love is at the heart of the covenant that is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, I love how you brought that up with perhaps the most famous passage in the Old Testament, right? Um, certainly in Judaism, it's it's at the core of, of Judaism, this idea that, that we as humans are called to love God and that the essence of God is love. And I, 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 I love that about this, um, this, this lesson, how it set it up as the context of the story that leads up to De Deuteronomy, the context that surrounds the story of Deuteronomy is God um, trying to show love at every point in earth's history, mm -hmm. even when humans reject him and don't show love back and, and him trying to enter into this loving relationship with humanity. I mean, did you see that as well? I did. I did. And I loved I loved how he kind of wove. Um, it was it was disconcerting at some time, at some points uh, at reading the lesson, how it just moved us throughout of throughout Israel's corporate history. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Hans Westermann, who's an Old Testament theologian, a very well regarded um, coined the term to describe this story that that you're that you're pointing us towards uh, he coined a german term um and the term is heilsgeschichte he mm. says that the old testament is a heilsgeschichte mm. um it's a history of salvation mm. and people used to ask westermann well where is salvation found because the old testament ends in kind of this terrible terrible experience of exile. And, and Westermann, I think as only a, an Old Testament theologian can do, says, ah, yes, yes. But the Tephilim is still there. Um, the books and the boxes that you write, the things that you place on your doorstep, mm. that you wrap around your forearm, those those remain with them in Babylon. Those are there in Rome. Those accompanied the people of Israel throughout exile. And they made it, they made their way from Jerusalem to Alexandria, mm. to Spain, and then the and then to Cal. And they live on in our day. Wow. Uh, and so yeah, it is, I think, I think, as you're pointing out, it's this. It's this history of salvation, yeah. and contrary to what a lot of us believe, what ends up saving us is this is this invitation of that God makes for us to love one another. Wow. 
oh, that's so beautiful that even when the Israelites are or the Jews are in exile, that deliverance is present because the deliverer is constantly mm-hmm. with them, right? That's so beautiful. And I, <laughs> just as an aside, I don't know if this was your experience, but I find that Old Testament scholars, there's like a passion in them that that it's a little bit different from the New Testament. Yeah. Nothing against our New Testament scholar brethren, no, but no, there no, is no, this no, passion. I don't know. It's something about the Old Testament, about Hebrew, about... Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I, Joey, I, I did my, my graduate work in Old Testament, mm. um, and I wouldn't consider myself an Old Testament scholar, and mainly because I can't grow a beard. You know that in order to be an Old Testament <laughs> scholar, you need to have like a rich and, uh. and luscious beard. <laughs> But I think it's because it's because the Old Testament is moved, right, by this mm. by this God of pathos, to mm. quote to quote uh, to quote Heschel, who says, Hear, O Israel. Mm-hmm. Right? Israel's distracted and they're they're moving around in the desert. And he says, Hear, O Israel. Mm. Yahweh. Adonai. God, right? God's personal name. Yeah. God is your God. Yeah. It's it's we like to possess a lot of things. Mm. I don't think I'm I don't think I'm brave enough to make any claims to possessing God, yet that's what scripture says. Yeah. God belongs to you. Wow. That's that's a God of pathos that that had moved Heschel to to be so passionate. Wow. And then throughout Deuteronomy, he, you know, Moses recounts the history mm-hmm. of the Israelites and how this is the type of God that is your God, mm-hmm. right? This is the God that delivered you from Egypt, that 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 had those, you know, ten plagues and parted the Red Sea and did all of these. Mm-hmm. This is your God. So powerful mm-hmm. to say that that we have we possess that God as much as humans are able yeah. to possess God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it 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 develops right this this whole tradition of telling each other's stories with this God develops this this thread in uh, Hebrew Bible studies. We call it Deuteronomistic history, mm. and it follows kind of this well this line that that baffles a lot of Old Testamenters um, because the prime uh, driving force to Deuteronomistic history is uh, this idea of retribution. If you do A, then God will do B. If you do B, then God will do C. And a lot of people um, say that books like Job, for example, or even Ecclesiastes or uh, some other books are a direct challenge against uh, Deuteronomy because they say, well, life isn't that formulaic. Mm. And while I think it's it's so wonderful that you have this vast richness within within the Old Testament, one of the things that that I think we've missed is that Deuteronomistic history makes this faith claim that is completely disconnected from the reality mm. that surrounds you. In other words, if you do A, God will do B. And you're saying, well, yeah, but B hasn't happened yet. Right? I followed God. I've kept the covenant. Yeah. And I'm still in exile. And God says, no, you're not. Because I'm on your, on your forearm. 
and I'm on your on your head, mm. on your forehead, and I'm in the gates of your city, and I'm in the doorsteps in your home. And so what what I find and what people ask me a lot is um, having some con connection with uh, the Jewish faith tradition was what has kept these people as a people for 5,000 years. And then it's not the land. It's their capacity to carry God. It's the fact that just mm -hmm. like the tabernacle is movable, their face with their faith was movable, mm -hmm. um, and they still carry it with them. If uh, you go to the Holy Land and you're uh, you're flying an LL airline, you'll see a couple of them pull it out. Yeah. Uh, they'll pull out the tefillim, and yeah. uh, we call them phylacteries. They'll wrap it around their forehead, their forearm, and their forehead, and they'll start repeating this mm -hmm. because that's their way of making the tabernacle, God's presence, movable. And so they take it with them, and it's not really then about Canaan or about what happens in geopolitics or what happens with Jerusalem. It's really about the idea that this God is going to be there because that's the heart of the covenant. Yeah. It's like a constant reminder that God is present with them, even when they can't see him, even when it seems like the world is sort of mm -hmm. spinning out of control. This, this, this phylactery, this tefillin that's around their, their forearm physically reminds them though we can't see him he's with yeah. us we don't do that right we don't you know as christians we don't have those um is there something beneficial is there something that we can learn um to, by doing these kind of physical acts these these habitual rituals that will help us to remind us that of god's presence can we do things like that as well um i i'm becoming I don't know if I'm there yet because you know that my temperament is not inclined in that direction. But I am I am becoming much more open uh, to within Christian uh, within Christian movements this idea of mysticism. Uh, people like the German uh, theologian Meister Eckhart, who talks about rituals mm -hmm. as visible expressions of faith mm. and so i love being in jerusalem particularly looking at the house of orthodox jews that have this very same passage yeah. glued on their doors if you uh if you stay in a hotel you'll you'll see it yeah. um, glued on, on the door to your room and while i'm at it I, i'm in israel um every time i go out i touch it and and, and kiss it and um the reason why i do that is because there's something physical mm -hmm. about recognizing, right, that God's presence is is in this physical world, yeah. and so um, I'm not trying to have us start uh, collecting phylacteries, but what I am saying is that too often within Christianity, particularly Western Christianity. God has become the God of the mind, the God of the spirit, the God that is immaterial. Mm. And I think the more we are able to recognize that God is connected to our fleshy existence, mm -hmm. uh, the more intentional we are about taking that God with us. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, I think that the ritual, whatever rituals you guys uh, 
at home want to perform, that's helpful to kind of ground us in the reality that God's presence is with us here and now. Yeah, because we are also physical beings, Correct. right? And even the Adventist doctrine of holism, right, mm -hmm. is is this idea that our our spiritual selves is not something that's mm -hmm. separate from our bodies, but that, you know, spirit, mind, body, that is what composes a living soul. So definitely having some connection to the physical is important. Um, I do know that sometimes phylacteries, they get a bad name because like anything, any ritual, it can lose its meaning and just become rote, um, rote repetition, right? Rather than having real meaning. But when it does carry meaning, it's, it's very powerful, right? Like you talked about going to the Holy Land. I remember the first time I went to Israel, wow, I didn't expect to be moved the way that I was. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, yeah, we're going to this place. We'll see a bunch of historical um, artifacts and that will be nice, right? But the first time I remember walking in Capernaum and and then um, our guide saying, you know, this is this is where we think um, Peter's mother's house was. This is a path that Jesus may have walked. That just hit me in that moment. I'm standing in a spot mm -hmm. that Jesus may have stood on. And it wasn't until that moment that I that it got why people loved relics so much, mm -hmm. right? Back in the day. Um, you know, I kind of used to laugh like, oh yeah, the finger of Jesus, the cup that Jesus drank out of, oh, you know, that's those those are just objects. There's nothing holy about them. But there's something about being physically connected to a spot that at some point in history that Jesus, that God himself walked on this earth. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There was something incredibly moving about that mm -hmm. thought. So I, I agree with you that this idea of the physical, our need to connect ourselves to the physical. So how can we do that more within Adventism, within our, our faith tradition, mm. within within Christianity? What, what would that look like to connect ourselves more to that? So I think I think one of the things that we do is we follow the example of of the people in Scripture. Mm. You know the story right before Moses thinks about Deuteronomy. He receives this this image of a burning bush. Mm. He sees the bush and the bush isn't consuming. And then he hears the voice and the voice doesn't say kneel down or close your eyes. The voice says, take off your sandals mm. because the path, the ground you are stepping on is holy. And a lot of the times we say, well, you know, it's the sandals are dirty and that's not what's going on here. God wants to ground Moses physically mm. in a place where our body can connect with his body. Mm. And so I think that a way in which we can be mindful of that is within, within our traditions, we also have rituals. Adventism has its own rituals. Mm -hmm. The question that I think we're at, we ought to ask ourselves is, how does this ground my body into the body of Christ? How is my body being grafted into the body of Christ? Whether it be through communion or whether it be uh, through uh, foot washing or whether it be to the through singing uh, congregationally in a church, whether, whether we're doing doxology or the anthem, how is this experience connecting me, my body, my physical being to the, to the body of Christ? Mm. And that's both, his literal 
body of Christ, the body mm-hmm. that desires to dwell within us. Yes. Um, his prayer, right? The last prayer that he that he prays in John, um, that you, that that you know, that they are united and that I be in them as they in me. Those are real words that Jesus is trying to say. This isn't mm-hmm. like some esoteric, like mm-hmm. new age. Uh, stuff. God, Jesus is actually saying, I want to be, I want to dwell inside you. My body wants to dwell inside you. I want to be connected to you physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are the practices that we're doing in our, in, in how are our Adventist rituals allowing us to connect deeper with that Jesus mm-hmm. and with uh, the body of Christ, which is obviously the church. Wow. Wow. And actually, um, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching allows for this even more because, you know, you were talking about how the sanctuary was portable. God could go with them. That sanctuary Mm -hmm. was the place of God where God's presence was known. But in the New Testament, you know, the writers reframe that to say that we are the temple of Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit and that we carry God with us wherever we go. Mm -hmm. And so um, as those temples, we are now God doesn't need a physical te- mm-hmm. physical temple or a physical tabernacle to be with us. God is with us mm-hmm. all the time. And within our, like you pointed out, within our faith tradition, we do have those physical rituals that we engage mm-hmm. in periodically that ground us. But the important thing, I think what you're saying is that we need to be asking ourselves as we participate in the Lord's Supper, as we wash each other's feet, as we engage in baptism, all, the, all of these things, as we sing songs and we shake people's hands and greet them on Sabbath morning, we need to be asking ourselves, how does this ground ourselves in God? Mm-hmm. How does this, how it, in this moment are we making contact with God? Exactly. That, I think, what you just did was a very powerful hermeneutical exercise in shifting uh, the foci of our interpretive paradigms Mm. away from us and towards God. Mm. So, friends, if you missed it, what Joey says is we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And I know you've heard that before, right? And it always is about what I put in my body. So every time we want to bash someone with the health message, we say, don't you know that your body's a temple? That's not what Paul is talking about, is it? What Paul is actually talking about is the God that created the heavens and the earth now lives inside of you. Mm. How are you living in the world? Mm. And so there's there's this very physical reality, right, that, that we're being invited wow. to participate in. After we recognize that, Indeed, God dwells within us. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that that there's anything wrong with the health message. You obviously should be careful about what you eat and what you drink and how much you sleep and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the primary point that Paul is trying to make. The primary point that Paul is trying to make is you have God living in you. Now go out and live in the world. Mm. And so I think it's, it's this it's this constant reminder and that's i think the power of rituals that it constantly reminds you what deep deep responsibility we have not only to our personal ethics but to communal ethics in a world where god calls us to live as temples as tabernacles wow i was making a brilliant point and i didn't even realize that i was making (laughs) it was was well said no i love how you brought that that out that actually as temples of the Holy Spirit, 
we are the grounding. We can then be mm-hmm. the physical grounding points yeah. for other people. Yeah. Like since God is not um, visibly present in, in our lives right now, we can be the visible manifestations mm. of God, the incarnations mm. of God to other people. Not saying, not saying that we are God, right? This is not pantheism. Right, right? correct. We're not saying that we are God. But what we're saying is that we can be the grounding point for God right. for other people in right. the world. So that when people meet us, we are like we try to say, we are his representatives. Right. But even more than that, because God is with us, we're carrying God to those people. Right. And so I think that's a really important distinction that you made. And we, we because if not, we're going to get comments and we're going to say, oh, they're, they're on that Kellogg pan, pantheistic train. We're yeah. not. No. The Jews didn't believe that the tabernacle was Yahweh. Mm. The Jews didn't believe that the Ark of the Covenant was Yahweh. The Jews believed that Yahweh could not be represented in anything, but that Yahweh decide, decided out of his boundless love to self-limit and to dwell in a tent. And what we're saying is, just like Israel saw in the field of battle that tabernacle, mm-hmm. that ark, and said, we're going to be okay. You now are called into the field of battle that is this world. Mm-hmm. So that other people may see you and say, Joey's here. Mm-hmm. It's going to be okay. He's got a message for me from God. Wow. That's a lot of responsibility. It is. But it's, it's I think, what Deuteronomy is calling us to do. Wow. So I know we're going to take time to cover this um, as we go through these lessons. But just at the beginning, as an introduction, what would that look like? What does that look like to be the grounding point of God for the world, to mm. be God's representatives to the world, to be that touch point, of, to be the temple of God? Mm. To, to people who don't know may not know him yet. Mm. Well, what does that look like? Oh, that's I think that's that's the primary question. That's the question um, that that we're all called, I think, to to struggle with and to wrestle with. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. Um, I bet because words sound really nice, yeah. but the que- but like we talked about in the lesson. Those words, those statements that we make about God, those have implications. And the, the, the only way they can have implications is if they're lived out in this realm of flesh and blood that, that, we're, called, that we're being called uh, to live in. I think what that looks like then is that we achieve, and we've talked about this time again, we achieve the capacity to be a place for people to experience peace, Mm. that we are people that are not dragged into other people's anxiety, thus making us reactive Mm. to that, Mm. so that we remain separated from that that temptation to engage in reactivity. But we're still deeply connected to people. Mm. And so we're holding that tension Mm -hmm. between recognizing, hey, I know that you're going through a lot right now. I am not going to react. Mm -hmm. I am actually going to provide you with a different path, a different Mm. set of questions 
maybe a different thing that you haven't considered because I am deeply connected with you or to you. I don't know. What do you think, Joe? What does that look yeah. like? Wow, that was powerful. Um, we've talked about this idea of differentiation before, but I love how you connected that to this, to being the presence of God for people, because that's really how we love people, right? Loving people doesn't mean um, taking on their feelings and making them mm -hmm. our own. Loving people means to be that that person that is connected, deeply connected to them, but it's still our, our identity is so grounded in Christ that we can be that positive mm. influence as well, right? That, 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 that love has a side of both grace and truth mm -hmm. of, of empathy and also um, identity mm -hmm. that you stay within your own identity. That's, that's so powerful. And to bring it kind of full circle to what you were talking about at the very beginning, that that comes really from loving God, mm -hmm. right? So at the heart of it, the only way we can really have that kind of love, show that kind of love for others is to be in a loving relationship right. with God and to allow him to form our identity mm. and that to be the primary connection so that we can love other mm. people well. That's so well said. My goodness, that is so well said. Um, so I know that we we talk about these spiritual uh kind of sometimes almost mystical truths that are in this book that is thousands of years old and people say oh yeah that's they 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 do a really good job but there's no real evidence to prove that this book written by a bunch of semi-nomadic people actually has any real implication in our life what you just said is basically the basis for uh, family systems therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Where we say, hey, I don't have any answers. You have all the answers. You have these competing parts within you that are that are trying to protect you. But within you, deep down, deep down, you have a self. Mm. And the self wants you to succeed. The self, you, this real self that you possess wants you to be happy. It wants you to achieve completion. It wants you to be well differentiated. All these things that we're talking about, you have the tools. The difference is the Bible says you have the tools because long ago God breathed hmm. his very spirit within you. Mm -hmm. And so amidst all these other voices inside you that are competing and telling you lies about who you are and what you need to believe and how broken you are, God is saying, my beloved child, my spirit still lives in you. I still breathe that spirit in you mm -hmm. so that you may have life and life abundant. Wow. 2,000 years ago, and the therapists and the social scientists are catching up now. Um, so I think, mm -hmm. Joey, what you're, what you're trying to say is that it's simple to understand, yet it's incredibly difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Because now we're, act, we're asking this real inner self that we possess mm -hmm. to be aware of how loved she or he is, mm -hmm. and then to go and do likewise with the world. I get the first part. Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to tell my inner self, hey, um, you're not terrible. You're not a sinner. You're not. You're a beloved child of God who 
I find it much more difficult, though, to go out and live that out in my life. As we, as we start to, to wind our conversation down, do you have any ideas on how we do that piece? Mm-hmm. I've understood that I'm loved. Mm-hmm. I've understood that God's breathed spirit in me, that God gives me life and sustains me. But now I got to go do that for other people. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think it starts with, with that being a loving person means that it starts with experiencing love for ourselves. Mm. So embracing love for ourselves, which is why, you know, my prayer for my daughters every morning is, um, God, I, I pray that they will experience that they are loved by you all day today, Mm. throughout the day, no matter what happens, that the one thing that they never forget is that they have a father in heaven that loves them so much Mm. and that values them so much that they never lose sight of that. Because when humans are able to experience love, there's something about that that makes us more loving. Those of us that struggle with loving others often struggle because we don't feel loved ourselves, mm-hmm. right? We don't feel that we don't have that that person or that God that loves us completely, unconditionally, absolutely. And when we don't experience that for ourselves, it's hard for us to show that to other people. So like you said, getting grounded in that love, I think is the first step, which comes from, like we talked about, habits and practices, right? That our love for God grows when we engage in habits that grow our love for God. I love, we've talked about him before, James K. Smith, Mm -hmm. who talks about how our loves are actually craftable. And he uses the example of food, right? Um, no, no child is born loving Brussels sprouts, right? There's, well, maybe there's a few. <laughs> but typically Brussels sprouts is an acquired taste. I know for sure kimchi is a oh, dish yeah. in Korean tradition is definitely a, yeah. an acquired taste, right? Um, nobody just takes their first bite of kimchi, smells that very... I don't want to say say what kind of smell it is. That strong, pungent scent of kimchi, and says, mm, "That sounds. That seems delicious." <laughs> Nobody does that. However, as you eat more and more of it, it grows your taste buds. Mm. Right? It crafts your love for the food. Mm. So the habits we engage in actually craft our love. And so, as we engage in habits, things that we talk about at our church all the time, prayer, study right? Service. Um, as we get, engage in these habits, it actually wets our, our love for God. And at the same time, as our love for God grows, our love for other people mm. grow. And that when we engage, when we interact with people in the moment, I'm sure all of us have had people where as soon as we meet them, we, we realize, man, that is a loving person. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not any one thing that they do or any one thing that they say, there's just something about them that is just loving. It comes out of their pores, right? I think that's that's the first step to being loving to others is to craft our love for God. Yeah. Yeah, and again, uh, you know, just reading from any faith tradition in the world, um, we, we might disagree on many things. We do agree on one thing, and that is you achieve what they call enlightenment, when you allow this this inner self, which I don't think it's the self, I think it's we we I think we both are saying it's God's love. When you realize that, 
And you, when you realize that that's what gives you value mm. and that that's what grounds your life and that's what gives you purpose, mm. then people say, hmm, I finally reached nirvana or enlightenment or whatever you call it. And it's not that. It's not. It's, the beauty is it's nothing that we do. It's already in us. God has already poured into us so much. And we just have to recognize that. Mm. We have to realize and recognize that. And I think the way we do that is by engaging in these holy habits that you have mentioned, mm. right? You pray. And you pray not like we typically pray, right? We don't pray just for the things we need. We pray for the needs of the world. We pray for the opportunity to be able to respond to those needs in a meaningful way. Yeah. We study, but we don't study to learn more in order to prove other people that we're right and they're wrong. Or we, we study because we yearn to be better agents of salvation for the world. Mm -hmm. And obviously we serve. We serve not to gain a place at the at, in the heavenly sea. We serve because we recognize that divine imprint in other people. And so we say to each other, you belong to me and I belong to you. And if we engage in these holy habits, then this, this God peace in us, this God spirit in us that God is breathing and trying desperately to awaken uh, moves. And so miracles, miracles and joy and peace begins to begin to happen wow. in very much the same way that they happened in scripture. It was when people allowed uh, God to speak to them and through them that wonderful things occurred. Yeah. And can I just say, I mean, something that I've personally been blessed from being a part of this church community, um, you know, our senior pastor, Randy, he, he begins every year inviting people to read through the Bible mm -hmm. with him um, throughout the year. And when I started doing that with him, there was something so powerful about that. Um, I'm not saying that everybody has to do this, but I, as an example of engaging in this ha these habits, that there is something incredibly grounding about, for me, I, I, I do it at the beginning of the day, starting, starting my day, with just reading through scripture. And sometimes, yes, there's passages of scripture that are very dry and I'm like, I don't know what that has to do with my life. But as I read through scripture, it, it has almost become this, it's, it's grown my hunger for mm -hmm. scripture. It's kind of like when I first started drinking water, I was told that you should drink two cups of water in the morning every day, right? So I started doing that because they say most people are dehydrated and they don't realize it. And at first it was so hard to drink those two cups of water because it felt like too much water. <laughs> now, after having done it for years, if I miss my two cups of water, I feel parched. I, I sense my dehydration. And scripture is that way now for me too, is that as, as I've gotten in this pattern of beginning my day with scripture, um, reading through uh, the story that, uh, of, of, of the Bible, when I miss that or if I do it later on in the day, um, I I hunger for it, and I feel less grounded, less mm. stable. I I sense how not having that contact with God has actually impaired my day. Whereas before, when it wasn't my habit every single day, 
I didn't sense it as much. So there's something about engaging in these daily habits. And it doesn't have to be reading through the whole Bible. It could be just just spending a little time with God at the beginning of the day. But whatever whatever that daily routine is, once we start going through it, it it starts, we start to hunger for it mm-hmm. when we miss it. Yeah, you know, as you were talking, I uh, I just thought about uh, the words of that, that old Christian father, Gregory of Nyssa, who says, awaken me to your presence in mm-hmm. me, O Lord. And I think that's the prayer that, that we pray. Oh, Lord, awaken me mm-hmm. to the presence of me, of you in, in me already, which is God is trying to do something in you. Mm-hmm. Um, are you ready to recognize God is doing a new thing? Do you not see it? And mm-hmm. I think I think what's going on through these holy habits is that God is starting to say, see, I've always been there. Mm-hmm. You can hear, oh, and you can include your name there. The Lord one mm-hmm. is God and he is yours. Mm-hmm. Joey, pray for us as we as we conclude this uh, this conversation. And I'm excited to see what God has in store for us over the next 12 weeks. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our God. That has new meaning for us now. Our God. You're not just the God of Israel. You're not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not just the God who created the world and the universe. You are also our God. And you dwell with us. Dwell within us. And we have this incredible privilege of carrying you to the world. And so for all of us, the two of us sitting here, Zach, who's behind the camera producing this, to everybody who's listening to this, watching this, we ask that you continue to ground us in you, to grow our love for you, to encourage us to engage in these habits that form our love for you and ultimately form our love for others so that we can be, truly be, those touch points of your presence to the world around us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God be in you. God be with you. God be all around you. We pray. See you next week.